to identify what will be the next icon, it's worth trying to understand what we think makes the icon in the first place. I liken this to trying to buy something on Amazon when you have pages of the same thing, and inevitably you buy the one that has the most reviews. The growth of an icon, I believe, happens in the same way. And so to look at the next icon, I believe what we do is that we, we look back and I personally think that's going to be smaller watches in yellow gold. Yellow gold, baby, Nana's jewellery is back. On this week's show, we have the man with the best manicure in the business, Andrew from Watchfinder, who, together with Dave and Rick, miles over what makes him watch an icon and reviews some contenders from Audemars Piguet, Hublot, Moser and Credor. And in lieu of Christmas carols, we sing a watch rainbow instead. Enjoy the show. Bonjour, je m'appelle Richard. Welcome to Blog to Watch Weekly, all of our French listeners. Hey, Andrew. Morning. Hello, good morning. Are you a football fan? No, thankfully. No, another one. Oh, well, never mind. Never mind. Well, I can't speak any more French than that, so so that's, that'll be the, the last mention of the England football team coming home. Came home again, <laughs> empty-handed. Never mind. It's not that Scotland's so much celebrated as breathed a sigh of relief, yeah, that we didn't have our noisy neighbours you know, celebrating because, you know, we're nothing in Scotland if not, you know, very poor at allowing other people to celebrate success. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing we like more than a good moan at other people. Whether we succeed or we fail, we'll definitely break something. So you can be sure of that. <laughs> at least you managed to get there. But never mind. In your case, it's all about the taking part. In our case, we didn't even get to take part. There we go. Anyway, welcome to the show, everybody. You will already have heard the dulcet tones of Andrew from Watchfinder and the... What's your own channel called, Andrew? Andrew Morgan Watches. Yeah, that was fairly straightforward at some point. I should have remembered that without any difficulty. David is here. How are you, David? Good. Great. Back from Switzerland last week, so all good and happy. Are we going to be able to talk about what you were doing in Switzerland, or is it still a trade secret? Uh, I think I can talk about it, yeah. Good stuff. Well, you know, this being a podcast, why don't you tell us a little bit about it now? Sure. Uh, I'll let our lawyers <laughs> settle it in the end, should I uh, say something that I was not supposed to. <laughs> uh, I was there with uh, on the invitation of Girard Perago, first of all, did a little manufacturer visit, which uh, I'm not sure if people are aware, but it's, it's the same manufacturer as, uh, as Ulysse Nadan, so they have a shared ownership and, uh, you know, they moved uh, in under one roof, but it's one impressive roof. It is one really genuinely true manufacturer where, you know, from the, from the ground floor where you have the heavy machinery making the screws and the pinions and whatnot, all the way to the top where the watchmakers are making the final adjustments to the movements. It's one of those true blue-blooded manufacturers, whereas uh, some other places that call themselves manufacturers, sometimes what we see is like a few machines to cut or mill, you know, uh, plates, but, you know, where everything else is coming from is a mystery sometimes. And yet they get to call their movements manufactured just as uh, much as uh, GP and the Ulysarden does. And to read my thoughts on this, you will find my article on the blog to watch where we discuss the hypocrisy of in-house movements and all the rest of it. And so that was that. And uh, actually, I will tell you this. This is this is fun. Jared Perigo found a way to make an old watch brand's history interesting to take in. 
Uh, they've, you know, so usually I'm halfway across these YouTube videos, I'm asleep on my keyboard. You know, it, it, it begins in like, in 1783, XYZ, did, uh, you know, it's like not very exciting sometimes. And what they did is they, they had this immersive room that's basically black or dark, I should say. And then some sort of a projector system starts and the whole thing, all the, all the walls light up and you're in the middle of this whole thing. And of course, there's a narrator who, you know, talks in deep, impressive voice about the history of the brand and yet pronounces tourbillon, tourbillon every single time. <laughs> <laughs> so not. <laughs> but anyway, you know, like, of course, we are, you know, uh, just journalists nitpicking everywhere we can, but otherwise it was great. And what they had, and this was the interesting bit, is that they had this, like, I don't know, 15 meter long, like 45 feet long table of, like, little cutouts of different periods of, of a GP's history, and these were backlit, so that the entire walls were covered in these shadows. It was a very clever way of playing with light and shadow and so on and so forth. And although this is not the most mobile presentation ever, I hope that they will do that at some point at Watches and Wonders or some other place and, and more people get to experience this because it was really genuinely cool. And so the purpose of this room is that they can train their sales staff and other people associated with the brand about the history of Jira Perigo. Good stuff. I look forward to seeing and hearing more about that. And yeah, possibly that will be what we see at Watches and Wonders this year. But it leads us interestingly onto an article you wrote yourself, David. Mm. This is a Grinding Gears. Mm. I Iconic watches versus endless choice, a conundrum for watch brands and buyers. Andrew, a bit like saying don't think about a pink elephant and then you think about a pink elephant. If I say iconic watch, what is the watch that immediately springs into mind? I feel like this is one of those psychological things people do to make me feel small. <laughs> it's a way of me finding out what your password is. It's one of those questions I'm going to ask you about your birthday and your mother's maiden name. And, you know, it'll be a combination of that will unlock the Andrew Morgan riches. <laughs> uh, good luck with that. <laughs> there is only one watch I can think of when it comes to iconic that comes immediately to mind. Uh-huh. And... The people listening will all say it at once. Three, two, one, Royal Oak. Yep. Yeah, it's just been imprinted on our brains at this point, hasn't it? As, as being the shape of a watch to be called iconic. Yeah, I think unfortunately you're right, because when I asked myself the question, if, if it's possible for one to do that, I was regretfully, yeah, the thing that popped into my head was a Royal Oak, which I think is interesting because it's an icon to us... But I don't think if you said to the general public, think of a watch, they would think of a Royal Oak. And therefore, my question, David, is if that's not the case, is it actually iconic? Yeah, that's exactly. You just spoke my mind. Sure. For us, which enthusiasts it is. But if you if you walk up to anyone on the streets of New York or, or Bombay or wherever and, and you tell them like, hey, OK, right. Just throw me a watch. You know, maybe they would draw oh. you a dress watch with two stick hands or if you said, draw me a, a sports watch, they would, you know, potentially draw a submariner of sorts or something like that. So. It is interesting that, yeah, the, the uh, Royal Oak really owns uh, the last few years in terms of design 
probably because so many other brands have started to to imitate its design you know like i have this montage of around i don't know 25 30 different uh, integrated steel preset blue dial watches currently on offer from uh, at least 25 different brands right so everyone's merging to this and the reason for that potentially is because it's elegant in some ways and sporty in some others and so it's a universal watch in the same way how the submariner was the universal watch for the like the 80s and 90s and maybe even the noughties now today we're like okay we've seen a dive watch a gazillion times before i'm not sure we need if we need like the timing bezel or whatever but i do want something that is that is rugged or looks rugged and yet masculine in its design and so that's where the integrated uh, steel bracelet you know craziness uh, comes into the picture i think where does this then actually take us is there such a thing really as an iconic watch when as you say if you were just to ask people in the street to draw a watch they probably wouldn't draw a watch that looked like any brand it would you know if you were to take the average picture and you know do a google reverse image search you'd probably come back to a daniel wellington or a fossil watch that would just be a kind of zero bezel yeah stick stick hands little skinny bracelet probably tiny in terms of scale so can something actually be iconic if most of the public wouldn't know what it was well funnily enough we've been kind of talking to journalists and things like that about watches who don't necessarily know about watches mm-hmm. and as part of that talk we've been showing them a series of watches that are what we consider iconic and then a collection of watches that we consider to be up and coming without fail they all gravitated towards the royal oak as being ah that's the one that everyone's talking about right these are people within the fashion luxury technology industries and they all seem to know about the royal oak they don't necessarily know why they know about it or what it is or what makes it iconic but they know that it's iconic and lest lest we forget that the royal oak was as far as i'm aware first watch that was produced explicitly to be iconic it wasn't produced to be complicated or discreet or high quality Specifically, it was designed to be something you could see from the other side of the room and know the person had spent a lot of money on it. And I think in what you're saying about the difference between can you draw a watch and can you name an iconic watch, drawing a watch is can I draw the basic ingredients of something, but an iconic something is usually defined by its ability to be immediately recognised. Think Kuntash instead of Toyota Yaris. (laughs) <laughs> That's true, but uh, can't the same be said about the day date, for example, with the president bracelet? I mean, that need didn't have to look like that. Uh, that particular, you know, like half, like semicircular links and and a fluted bezel and all those things that they were superfluous and they were just there to create something that was recognizable as a day date. I suppose those are still all built around a function. It's giving style to function, whereas the Royal mm. Oak, a lot of what exists there is purely to be iconic. There is no need for those screws. There's no need for that shape. There's no need for the integrated bracelet. It doesn't perform any additional function aside from the way it looks. You, you'll remember that 10 years ago, the Royal Oak, the Nautilus, etc. nobody cared about them. They thought they were ugly. These mm. things could be purchased for less than $10,000. Now they're crazy. And the reason I think that is, is because we move in cycles of trends. Like you see in the fashion industry, we've moved through an 80s trend into a 90s trend and tickling the noughties. I think watches track that too, based on the performance of collectors at the auction houses sort of 10 years ago. 
10 years ago, the auctions were, were hot selling the A-series Royal Oaks. They're all gone now. What are they buying at auction houses next? They're starting to dabble in kind of the 80s jewellery watches, the 90s quartz. Those are starting to appear as collector's items. So I think for now, the Royal Oak is an iconic watch, as it was back in the 70s because of trends. But I'm sure at some point we will come to a place again where people think, oh, that's too much. I mean, think what happened at the end of the 80s. There was a, a, a nice little crash going on and people didn't want to be ostentatious anymore and we moved into that period of the 90s where watches were small and tucked under a cuff like they did in the 30s again for the same reasons and i wonder if we'll see that happen again and the royal oak will no longer be iconic it's, it's 100 percent happening it, it already had started happening in, in a way that we see what uh, brands associated traditionally with with large watches yeah, are debuting smaller and smaller and smaller you know like a, like an iwc portofino perpetual calendar that just debuted at 40 millimeters you know like even two years ago you, you you'd have been you know hard-pressed to find an iwc perpetual under 44 you know or 43 and i was mm. always wondering like do these really genuinely need to be so freaking big you know just because of the movement or whatever i i like the perpetual but i just don't want like a 45 millimeter brick on my breast sometimes and and so especially for perpetual watch you know a perpetual calendar has its function rooted in in, in the future like far ahead so when you buy a 45 or 46 millimeter like carbon black whatever watch are you sure you want to wear that before you you use your leap year uh, display for the first time no you you have sold it <laughs> <laughs> interestingly it just shows how dumb my life was but myself and my family were scrolling through a watch finder uh, last night <laughs> for no particular good reason but my wife has finally crossed the ap barrier which is last night was basically the first time she looked at the royal oak and was like yeah you know what i actually quite like that now whereas before it was like that is just ugly horrible don't get it whatever but as you get exposed to these things mm. there's something that happens to you and i wonder if managing to explain what that is is really the heart of what makes a watch iconic the ability for what its design does to actually change a person's mind. And mm. I can't think of many other watches like that because, I mean, frankly, I still don't like the Nautilus. And I don't think I'm ever going to like the Nautilus. But I can distinctly remember myself seeing a Royal Oak for the first time and not liking it, and then at some stage in the future, liking it. Hmm. Maybe that is the heart of the genius of what these brands are all trying to find in their secret sauce of making a watch iconic. But Andrew, you mentioned looking at what may become iconic, and I guess, David, it is a bit of a daft question, because, as you say, we don't decide what becomes an icon. It just happens to become one, I think. I don't think there's a process. I think it's just you strike gold at the end of the rainbow. Hmm. But for both of you, is there anything out there or up and coming that you think might be on the way to being considered an icon? Well, David uh, touched upon this in his article about the, the conundrum of choice. And I think to identify what will be the next icon, it's worth trying to understand what we think makes the icon in the first place. I suppose I liken this to trying to buy something on Amazon when you have just pages and pages of the same thing from slightly different <laughs> companies in slightly different shapes. And inevitably, you buy the one that has the most reviews that it recommends because going with the trend is easier and safer. You, you, you feel like you're less likely to get burned that way. Mm -hmm. The growth of an icon, I believe, happens in the same way. You are a person looking for a product that is going to require the least amount of thinking 
because ultimately brain power takes energy doesn't it so you you want to do as little of that as possible have that group think and if if people start to home in around on one particular product then it's going to take off and to do that it needs to have a reason to stand out above all the others and i think there are a few brands that struggle to have icons because of that problem of choice so if you take a look at someone like omega or grand seiko their catalogues are filled with incredible watches but it's very hard to go this is the icon except maybe with the speedmaster but the speedmaster looks so different to everything else stands out so much by comparison i think for a brand to have an icon first of all it needs to have a singular product that stands out for grand seiko it's the snowflake that's the one that's grown that popularity and so to look at the next icon i believe what we do is that we look back at what's being picked up at auctions five ten years ago we look back at what came after the royal oak that piqued people's interest and i personally think that's going to be smaller watches in yellow gold. We saw a hint of that as a crossover piece with the 222, unless we forget the 222 came out later in the, the 70s period and was a bit of a, a sleeper hit, which bridged the gap between the, the big Royal Oak and the, the smaller gold Rolexes that dominated the 80s. So yellow gold, baby, Nana's jewelry is back. <laughs> Stop winging that gold to webuyyourgold.com and start keeping it. Is it possible then to undo an icon? I'm especially thinking of the Speedmaster here because, David, as your analysis indicates, there are 1,516, is it, different versions of Omega references on their website? Oh, yeah. I'm not sure what proportion of those are Speedmasters, but I imagine a fair proportion. Is it possible to have an iconic watch? And I think it would be okay to consider the Speedmaster iconic. Is it possible to make it un-iconic? Is that a thing? Have we just invented a new word? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think it's very difficult. As long as you keep making the same one iconic reference, then you're safe. And uh, we've seen this over and over again that brands try their best sometimes to destroy <laughs> that status. You know, like I, I featured <laughs> that crazy um, music equalizer um, inspired gem set to Royal Oak and uh, the caption says, is this an icon still? Uh, which is a Royal Oak, but it's an kinds of colors and and it's crazy and i like these crazy gem set colorful watches i freaking love them and i like that watch too but sometimes you have to just say okay do, do we want for this to be the vehicle for this sort of message or this sort of exercise and so yeah i think it's you know brands have been trying but they have also been failing to un-iconize some of their pieces but back to uh, for a moment what andrew said I fully agree. Smaller and yellow gold, 100% coming back, for, for sure. And I really look forward to it, actually, to see more 36, 38, 39 millimeter watches that actually match the size of people's wrists. You know, when it's not like... <laughs> when every single watch review from the 2010s basically was about how long the lugs are and how the bracelet goes downwards immediately just so that it can wrap around your wrist because the watch just stretches all across your wrist and basically over the edges. And, and, and that's just not a correct look in my opinion and so sure it's going to be a challenge for watch brands because the 45 plus millimeter case sizes have given way to all these amazing movements and amazing watchmaking exercises because the engineers the, the watch movement developers finally had a whole lot more space to work with and that has given way to all these incredible movements that we have been seeing and so the challenge arises to fit these impressive movements and impressive complications into watches that are sized for, at 42 is where I would draw the line you know below 
below that is where elegance really actually begins. And over that, it's all just uh, the 2010s madness. Is there, though, a, a watch that's yellow gold and under 40 mil that could be considered like an actual range of watches, like the Royal Oak? Or is it just that that material and size is going to become increasingly popular. I personally hope it doesn't as I sit here wearing a 43mm Bremen. But <laughs> <laughs> nothing springs to mind. In fact, actually, you know what? The only watch that springs to mind when I think small yellow gold watch with a bit of a thing about it uh, that has a sort of semi-iconic status in real watch Nerville is actually a Vulcan Cricket. Mm. And I think the only reason I think that is because I've got one. And that's a tiny Vulcan cricket watch, yellow gold, really nice, neat, has a trick to it with the alarm. But I can't think of any particular range of watches that I would think, all right, okay, that's what's going to come. I mean, we did have the the bump that was the Universal Genève Paul Router. It had its moment some years ago, but frankly, that was almost entirely media driven. I'll not name the particular media that drove it, but that's a different conversation right so is there something there that you guys are thinking of yeah actually or is it just that you don't want to announce it on public radio because actually you pair are busy squirreling away cheap 38 mil gold watches <laughs> stockpiling them yeah for stockpiling of Andrew's getting ready to drop a watch finder video that'll blow the market and is in collaboration <laughs> with David who released the article on a blog to watch at the same time. So name me a watch that you think will actually be this watch that drives 38 mil gold watches into the stratosphere. Well, put it this way. If, if Piaget aren't working on a re-edition of their 80s polo, then uh -huh. I don't know mm. what they're doing. <laughs> that, that for me is, is the... <laughs> Is, is the obvious successor to the 222. And looking at it again now, because I remember looking at this piece maybe five years ago, just doing some research on Piaget and thinking, ew. But I'm looking at it now and thinking, okay, no, I can, I can get on board with that. That's cool. Is that not the watch that Sylvester Stallone is now wearing? I think it is. <laughs> I don't keep up with Sylvester Stallone the, too much. The global ambassador <laughs> of sartorial elegance. <laughs> on Sylvester Stallone's new show, which is called Tulsa King, I am fairly sure he's wearing a Piaget Pongo solid gold circa 1980s, 1990s watch. So actually a quick Google, let's 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 live Google this. Stallone, Piaget. While you're uh, doing blah, blah, blah. that, I will I will say that I, I just as Andrew said Piaget, and that's exactly the brand I was having on my mind for and it's crazy to think because Piaget has been idle at best the last 10 years, you know, sure, they had the, the impressive concept and whatever, but the way the watch arm of that brand has been mismanaged or just basically let to, uh, was allowed to linger for the last 10 years is, is wow, this grace is a strong world, but it's, it's disappointing for sure for all of us who, who appreciate um, Piaget for what it is and what it what, and the potential that it still has. So Piaget could definitely make a comeback. And on the note of, of, of yellow gold I was going to add, I think white gold could also potentially come back just for the same, just for the simple reason of people just uh, migrating away from conspicuous consumption. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that white gold is also coming back in some ways. Gentlemen, I have just sent you a link. How mm. in tune are we? <laughs> or you two, because I, I, I would have mentioned a Piaget. So I've just sent you a link. Uh, Sylvester Stallone as Dwight Manfredi in the Tulsa King wearing a Piaget Pomo gold watch. So there you go. Andrew, 
how much stock have uh, Watchfinder got of Piaget Polo gold watches? And can we do a deal? <laughs> Probably not enough is the answer to that question. <laughs> well, can I suggest that as soon as you get off this call, <laughs> calling all Piaget Polo owners, if you wish to make some quick money, then do get in touch. Uh, podcasts at ablogtowatch.com. Uh, so there you go. Maybe some prop master working with Sylvester Stallone has maybe already cornered the market in what will be the new icon. Good week, bad week. And this really links into the whole icon thing. Are you both familiar with uh, Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports? I wasn't before this whole thing, no. Right, um, but okay. I certainly am now. <laughs> so he's, he's a character, which is a an interesting description, but I don't really want to get sued. Uh, so he's a character, one of these guys online who kind of lives the, in, in inverted commas, the lifestyle. Mm. Uh, and he has decided in his infinite wisdom, he's known as the Presidente. We all know there's only one uh, El Presidente in the watch world, and that's obviously Alex at Fifth uh, Fist Radio. But to shout out to Alex. But Barstool Sports have decided to release their own watch brand, and this is called Brick Watches, and has gone down particularly badly. <laughs> amongst the watch community because he's asking two and a half grand for something that is i mean it's just cheap nonsense frankly you can mm. go and check it out you check out the show notes that come out on friday you'll see some images of this perhaps or certainly some links he's an example of someone who is using his profile not to engage with an existing brand and therefore just take the fee a la a, I don't know, a david beckham or you know a Brad Pitt or somebody like that that takes money from an established brand. He's decided to cut out the middleman, as it were. It always worries me when people start advertising, start advertising something by saying, let's cut out the middleman. It always makes me think, you know, sometimes the middlemen are useful. They're a useful door and gateway to taste, decency, and all things sensible. So perhaps sometimes we need more middlemen. But he's decided to cut out the middleman and launch his own watch, the Brick Watch Company. It's terrible, it's awful, but he seems to be turning on the watch community thinking that he can take on everybody by convincing them that he's right. So have you gents had a look at this watch? And am I right? Is it just as terrible as it looks? Uh, I think it's just an easy uh, easy way of... It seems so simple from the outside. Like, hey, why is this little man here? That's just stupid. I'll do it all. You know, and um, and, and you see all that money hanging in the air. And, and it's, I'm sure it's very tempting in uh, in some ways, right? So it's, it's difficult. I think uh, it is tempting, but at the same time, it backfires sometimes. But also... You know what the watch community thinks of these things is totally irrelevant. You know, like if you look at the the, the amount of junk that's sold off as watches in the world, uh, to you know people who don't know any better because they just don't care. They have that much money, and sure, this is at over two k. Hmm. But at sometimes, you know, I think we are burned out in some ways when when certain items have so far detached themselves from actual value propositions, whether those are consumer electronics or fashion items or whatever else, or or even food or, or anything else that you can think of. I think, you know, it's it, it, it might have been worth a shot. Who knows? Basically, the watch community has gone through this and found where he's got the watch from. I think it's a chap called uh, Derek Guy who's done some of the work on this and has identified that this 2.5K watch is a branded up $42 watch from some sort of mass sales emporium whereby you can do this. And people have done this before. 
whereby they've taken watches and just branded them and sold them for a, a significant profit. But this markup seems to just be extracting it somewhat. And whether it's feasible for this sort of thing to really backfire, you know, it, relating to the previous conversation, he's trying to use his own personal iconic status, if you like, to try and create a watch brand, hoping that nobody's paying close enough attention and that folk will just go and buy this thinking that because it's for an expensive price means it's good because there is that sort of thing that goes on and we know having spoken to a lot of watch brands some watch brands don't like selling their watches for what they would consider to be the right price they will up them somewhat so that where they fit into is into the slot of the three to five K bracket that they want to exist in because they want to associate themselves. And there are brands that it has impacted doing the right thing, which is just making a decent profit. And I, I would probably directly speak of Christopher Ward because there's a quality watch there that sometimes gets ignored by some people because it's not expensive enough. So hmm. where does money and how much the demand is for a watch actually put the watch, Andrew? You know, somebody that buys this is going to be going, oh, look at this. It was a, I spent two and a half grand on this. That's the play. That's the easy luxury play. Then be able to see how much they spent as opposed to this is a quality watch, Swiss made, blah, de, blah, de, blah. Oh, there's, there's not many worse feelings than realizing you've spent a whole load of money on something that is actually rubbish is there <laughs> that moment of feeling like such a fool i was initially looking at this to try and find the devil's advocate approach you know like it's perhaps this is a guy who doesn't know a huge amount of watches he, he speaks in his bio about wanting to buy an expensive one but chooses not to and perhaps he thought he went to a a a supplier and thought oh i can provide something for two thousand pounds where rolex provides it for eight thousand pounds and i'm providing genuine value but i suppose this is a guy who created a business and sold it and should know better but i just don't like the idea of thinking that someone is taking advantage of people who don't and using their position there so i don't want to cast aspersions either way but if that is the case that's it's pretty rubbish, isn't it? Um, he certainly wouldn't be the first person to do it, and he certainly wouldn't be the first person to do it within the, the watch industry. But yeah, if you do end up buying one of these, I hope you don't listen to this podcast or <laughs> ever cross <laughs> yes. paths. I think living living with the naivety that you've bought a nice watch is probably a better position to be in than discovering yeah. you haven't. Yes, when we hashtag and copy Dave Portnoy into the posting of this episode, then yeah, we hope you haven't just come here to find out what the watch community thinks of your great new purchase only to find out that you've been ripped off to the tune of several thousand dollars. So apologies if that's how you got here, but we hope you will stay in touch. So a good week, I suppose, for... Well, it's a, it's a good week or a bad week. It's undecided as to whether it's a good week or a bad week for the, the brick watch company. I guess it will depend on whether they get away with it in terms of does he sell everything he's bought or actually is the watch community making so many comments on everything that he posts that actually this thing will just be a disaster the jury's out yeah exactly the question is like you know apparently these watches are not very expensive to make so he probably does not have that much money in them and if he can shift them around for two and a half thousand dollars then it's really <laughs> it's, you know he, he can recover his uh, investment pretty soon and at the same time you know there is no such thing as bad uh, advertisement right so it's like i think you know he, he's just in the news i'm sure he has a big fan base 
is to just go out and support him or whatever else and use this as a middle finger like you know i don't care what you think i just brought this crap for like two and a half thousand dollars there are people out there who think like that so you know maybe these have potential having seen perley's new advert i'm not so sure i agree with the view that there is no such thing as bad advertising but we'll leave that for <laughs> yeah. others to investigate and iwc had a bit of a cracking one a couple of weeks ago as well but there we go so Good week, bad week. Jury's out. However, someone who has had a good week is MBNF. They have opened their new factory. Now, David, uh, the two of us got a wee insight into this when yeah. we were in Geneva speaking to Max. And mm. Has your invitation arrived yet? He did promise to invite us. Yeah, I think that what they're doing is they're doing a soft launch. So people who happen to be in Geneva or something like that, but I, I'm not aware of like a huge party uh, having happened just yet. So yeah, yeah I think we're in the clear yet. But it is clear that Max has basically just moved into Dracula's castle just yeah. to complete the, the whole image of MPNF. He was talking to us about all the fireplaces and them all choosing their offices, etc. But it was interesting to see them all under one roof. And I think it really will allow them to provide even more of an experience to their customers. And, and hopefully a really nice experience to some some journalists that spring to mind. But I can't think of any any right now. Max, Max, get, get the invitation out. Mm. Any other nominations for Good Week, Bad Week, gentlemen? That's a good question. Honestly, I think we are we are on our way to to a good week where this year ends and and the new one starts. Uh, I'm not sure what else to tell you. Well, there you go. Here's predictions for 2023. Do we think 2023 will be better or worse for the watches that are launched and then the watch industry in general? So first up, watches. Are you, Andrew, are you more excited about what's coming, or do you think 2022 will prove to be a classic year? If the last few years have taught me to do anything it's to not attempt to predict anything because the chances <laughs> are it'll probably be weirder and worser <laughs> there you go 2023 weirder and worser that is andrew's <laughs> prediction david are you thinking that this year's watches and wonders will just blow our socks off or is it going to be more of the same is the world economic situation just going to mean that an already conservative industry is going to just shrink into itself. I would like our audience to tune in for our Watches and Wonders Geneva coverage, so I'm not going to tell you now what I think will happen. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I'll I'll tell you what, so I don't come across as a complete pessimist. I think next year is going to be a huge year for independence. And I mean, when I say independence, I mean the one-man bands. Mm -hmm. Because they have been blowing up on Instagram this year and doing some pretty hefty business. And I really like that. And, and I think it's the responsibility of people like us who have that position of, uh, of an audience to, to communicate more about them. And where we see, it's great to hear that GP are doing stuff to communicate where they've come from and what they're doing. But where we yeah. see more and more the bigger brands are closing more shutters and putting more barriers up to their buyers. These small guys are just there making amazing stuff. And their doors are completely open. You can talk to them individually and ask them what they're doing and have, a, and have an input into what they're creating. So that's my real hope, prediction and goal for next year is to become more embroiled in that section of the industry. 
I suppose if I was to continue the previous section as to what watch do I think will blow up or what brand do I think is finally ready to blow up, then I would go immediately to a brand that maybe 18 months ago I was speaking about. So you got to watch out for this. This is going to properly arrive at some point, And I think this is going to be its year. Been around for a while. David's written an article about one of their most recent releases, and that's Christian Vanderclaw, mm-hmm. the Planetarium Dunes of Mars watch. I have been a big fan of these guys for a long time watches close to perfection gets me exactly (laughs) where i want to be got in terms of what a watch can do david take us through a little bit about christian vanderclaw yeah i think the the most important thing as far as its current situation is concerned is that it is being run by pim kuslug i think uh, well i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly used to be the uh, lead engineer at uh, Frédéric Constant, Atelier de Monaco, and, uh, and Alpina. And, uh, you know, while those are not exactly super high-end brands, they, they have, you know, developed a really um, impressive series of in-house movements over the years. And those all go back to him, you know, so I think that's pretty important. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting moment and an interesting choice and it also shows to some extent that these true real blue-blooded engineers working at these brands are dreaming of like working on maybe 50 movements or something like that in a year and and just taking it to the next level right so it's it's a completely different challenge to make an fc 710 manufacturer movement for frederick constant that's going to be produced thousands of times over and will be worn all over the world in all kinds of different situations and to create some sort of a poetic display like these uh, von der Klohe watches have. I think these are the smallest planetarium uh, displays in the world. Yeah, I, I think that's just fantastic. So there's so much to, to work with over there for someone with the brains of BIM and and we'll have to see where that takes us. It's not going to be like the next huge MBNF brand, I don't think. It's just going to be, as far as I expect, an extension, already a very impressive portfolio of, of very expensive, highly complex watches producing extremely limited numbers yeah so just to explain christian van der Klaus main you know usp is producing these tiny planetariums on their watches you just need to go to a blog to watch article on the subject to have a look at these things yeah. but be in mind these are parts that in some cases are taking years to move around very very slowly around the dial I'm not quite sure what planet it will be, Jupiter or Mars or whatever it happens to be, to move around the circumference of the little planetarium that's on it. And they also get 10 out of 10 because the perpetual calendar and annual calendar element, the calendar element of this watch only uses hands. So it doesn't fall into the trap, which I dislike, which is it will use hands for part of it and then it will use a window for another part or the other way around. It'll use a window for most and then it'll chuck in a date hand for for good measure. It's so simple. It's absolutely gorgeous. And you say it's expensive, but I mean, you can get this one for under 50,000 euros. Hmm. And considering the engineering and, you know, that some of the watches you can get for £50,000. Yeah. In comparison, I just this just blows, for my mind, everything out of the water. Uh, Andrew, have you ever come across these? I have. And it's interesting off the back of talking about iconic because I don't think these are pieces that will ever be iconic. Boo, Certainly not in a... <laughs> <laughs> Let me explain myself. And there's a very good reason for this and it's a reason that you will like. Okay. These are watches that aren't created to be pop hits they're not 
attention grabbing from 20 meters away that live for a few years of hype. This is the kind of piece that you'll see in a museum in a hundred years because it's yeah. such a an engineering triumph that it kind of transcends the the vulgarity of being an icon, just a visual treat. It does so much more than that. And that's why I think that it's not an icon and won't be an icon, but it's also why I think it's very, very special. I like that. The vulgarity of being an icon. So <laughs> iconic, it's beyond iconic. So yes, I, I vote for more watches that get rid of the, the... Except the vulgarity of being an icon. It does sound like the sort of thing Rolex would do. No, no we are so beyond this. We, we don't think... We, I think being an icon is vulgar. Uh, so we're, we're moving on beyond it. So yeah, big fan of Christian van der Kolk. You should go and check these guys out. Although we met Pim mm -hmm. in Geneva, they weren't doing anything at Geneva Watch Days, were they? They were just around. Brands of this size are, are usually showcasing from a briefcase or something like that next to a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you know? From a, from a street corner in Geneva. Oh, yeah. You want a planetarium? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, a kind of a spacey theme as well. And this is, again, today is going to be about iconic watches and watches trying to be iconic. Let's deal with the one that, uh, regretfully, may one day become iconic. And that's mm. the Audemars Piguet unveiling the Code 1159 Star Wheel. Now, the Star Wheel complication, if it can be called a complication, that's an argument for a different day, is probably my favourite. It's probably one of the things that I'm attracted to the most in watches as being something different. Why is that? I just, I just love it. I just love the fact that it's a different way of doing it. I love the fact that it is a talking point. It's genuinely, if you're sitting with a Starfield watch on, then someone who would never ask you about a watch because they'd think, to go back to our previous conference, that it was somehow vulgar, will actually ask you, what on earth is that? And then you can have a conversation and bore them mm. senseless. <laughs> that combined with the 1159, something which Benny Hamas, or have you pronounced his name? I don't suppose it ben Amias. Crossroads. Yeah. Ben, ben Amias was trying to drop in. He was trying to go straight from unknown watch to immediate icon yeah. when they launched the 1159. And I think whether it's his genius, I think eventually the 1159 might might in 10 15 20 years time but if they keep producing them like this then it's got certainly a better chance than some of the original ones they founded so what do we think of this and the 1159 and the whole place within the icon as we say ap have the iconic watch can they can they double down and do it again any volunteers? I think that defenses for the for the 1159 were along the lines of like, oh, you know, when the AP came out, everyone hated it. So, and look what it is now. Uh, the problem is, I think, that the when the Royal Oak came out, no one has ever seen something like that before. But we have seen stuff like the 1159 before, you know? So that's the problem. It's not like we hate it because it's, it's so new. No, it's like it has some beautifully made lugs and then that's it. I give you the Bremen watch I am wearing with the triptych case, which looks always strikingly similar, I think, to the 1159. Yeah, problem is that AP has been drinking, you know, had been drinking its own Kool-Aid for a little bit too long. You know, if you go, if you search for the word, word iconic in its press release, you will find it more times than any pronoun, basically. It's like, 
you know, and, and they call themselves the masters of things. And, and you know, sometimes when, when, you, when you go on for so many years raising public expectations about your brand, you know, they will, they will rise and, and, and they will say, okay, well, you know, uh, I'm sure it's going to be crazy. And, you know, AP is launching a new one. Sure, it's supposed to be great, but it's not. And the problem was that they've been making Doriallo for so many years and not doing anything else, just axing previous collections like the Edouard uh, Piguet, the Chalot de Mar, and a number of others that they had been making and, and, and were not really working out because they were just let on, on you know, it was just left on the side. And so, you know, sure, it's easy to take the Royal Oak and put a new blue tile on it. <laughs> and basically, the Royal Oak can only be messed up. That's it's, it's really difficult to improve. And so they've been doing all these different additions and, and so on and so forth. But it was still just the Royal Oak. And yet they were calling them masters of this and that. And then when they try something new and it fails, of course, it's going to amplify that effect. Uh, the fact that you've been talking so highly of yourself for so long. I think that that is what has happened. I do like the idea of AP changing its Twitter account to list its pronouns as being iconic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Andrew, what do we think? Do we like Starwheel? Are we a fan of Starwheel unusual time-telling complications? So the, the 1159 as a whole is a very difficult thing for AP because when AP announced we're making a new watch I think the hope that everyone had was that it would also be iconic like the Royal Oak in the respect that as an icon it is discernible from a distance as being this new obvious concept but rather than doing that when you look at the the silhouette of the 1159 it looks like a watch what they have try to do is meet a halfway house of not making it look like a traditional watch not making it look iconic but by adding individual elements that they think are so iconic lugs or an iconic case barrel but those things don't stand out on on their own so it sits halfway between both things and so it's it appeals to to neither group with any particular strength so the addition of the the star wheel i think well, yeah, it's it's nice, but it still fits within that same silhouette. It's still a detail that's only really discernible from within breathing distance of someone else, which you hope strangers aren't, aren't at. And so I love the complication. I think the execution as well is a, 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 perhaps a touch messy, where the previous one had the sapphire discs and a, a display that led your eye to the, the readout at the top, whereas this one, you've got the seconds as a central element and the track that goes all the way around the outside, the branding at the bottom, and the, the contrast is lacking because the dial is darker, the markers are darker, the wheels are darker. I do really like it, but I suppose my caveat is if, if AP thinks this is going to be the thing that makes people go, oh, actually, do you know what? They do make other iconic watches. It's not going to do that because in silhouette at a distance, it just looks like a fairly straight, straightforward watch. To the people who buy a brick watch, it probably doesn't look that different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a low bar. Yeah, yeah, it's a low bar. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> AP and brick watches, that's a sentence where there's never been a comparison oh, before. I, I just wanted to add, I think, I think the, the balls thing would have been to bring back the Edward Piguet and, and, the, and its square case and create a tank competitor of sorts. You know, just to go round is just so, so tame and, and so, you know, it's been done so many times. And sure, the, and, and again, and they go out and I will never forget this. They said that they have worked two years on the AP logo on the dial. You know, like other companies have gone into space in that time, which is my favorite, <laughs> which is my favorite comparison. Dave Portnoy's created a whole new brand in that time. Yeah, yeah and sent it to space, basically. <laughs> they've, they've put their own name on a watch dial, you know, so... 
I, 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 it, it's lovely when watch brands disappear into this black hole that's called La Chute Pond and, and, and do their own thing, but sometimes it's just good to open a window and, <laughs> and look at what's happening outside before you say anything. We're going to touch on Dave's favourite subject in a couple of watches, but we're going to have a couple of audio clips first, so here's some audio from Sean and from Ripley. Hi everyone, Sean Lorenzen here to talk about the new H. Moser & C Streamliner Turbion Rainbow. Over the past few years, we've seen a real explosion in rainbow gem set bezel designs across the watch industry. This is sort of a new high impact take on what used to be a space in ultra high end watchmaking for precious metals, sometimes engravings, things of that nature. Uh, but over the past few years, we've seen brands really embracing the sort of rainbow icing that used to be an aftermarket product. And the latest brand to jump on this is Moser. And in true Moser fashion, the Streamliner Trivial Rainbow is both incredibly streamlined, incredibly minimal, but also very luxurious. It's taking the Streamliner Integrated Bracelet Sports Watch, adding a 60 stone colored sapphire bezel running the entire width of the case. On top of that, you're adding Moser's own in-house Turbion movement, and this is available in both rose gold and stainless steel. It's also a surprisingly good value for money. It's odd to talk about value when you're talking about a rainbow gem set watch, but MSRP for the H. Moser's Streamliner Turbion Rainbow is $119,900 for the stainless steel model and $175,000 for the rose gold version. Handing it back over to you guys. Uh, do you guys have a personal favorite when it comes to rainbow gem set watches? Is this so far out there that you just have no interest in it? Or is this something that we'll continue to see growing as time goes on? Hey everyone, Ripley Sellers here. Now, Hublot has a new rainbow-colored version of its MP09. Now, the watch itself is largely the same crazy piece that existed before, except now it's constructed out of this new rainbow-colored carbon fiber material that the brand was able to achieve by weaving individual colored bars in a selected pattern in and amongst the carbon fiber material itself, and then milling it into form, so you get one piece that has all the different colors in it. Now, the watch does cost us a little bit more than its single color siblings official retail price of $211,000 USD. One, what are your thoughts on this new rainbow colored Hublot? And two, do you think we're gonna see this uh, type of selective color carbon technology work its way into other models? Okay, David, I did promise that we would save these watches over from a previous couple of weeks. And oh, geez. in saving over the Moser, uh, mm. an Hublot has arrived, and that is the world of rainbow watches. Great. Uh, now, we'll not speak too much about the watches, to be honest, but is the rainbow now the new icon? Is the rainbow now the new must-have for every watch brand in previous years you must have a blue dial is it now you must have a rainbow alternative looks like it the problem is that it's <laughs> it's, it's it's expensive to replicate you know it's not like you can have maybe maybe yeah i mean hmm i take that back I, my, my problem is that when it's done cheaply it's terrible uh so uh the thing here is that it has to be done really well for the whole whole concept to work at least for me but i'm not sure what you guys think i am i'm fairly sure that dave's our mate dave's next release will probably be a rainbow version of the brick watch hmm. but <laughs> I, i'm uh i have to say between these two i actually like them both I have to say the Moser, I mean, they're completely different uh, takes on the same sort of idea of the colourful watch. The Moser does look epic. Hmm. But to be honest, I don't mind the Hublot either, the scream dial. 
is quite something. Andrew, you have a favourite? Do, do you have a favourite rainbow watch? You must come across a few at Watchfinder, the old Daytonas and other Ublos and bits and pieces, even the odd Omega. Well, I think you're right about rainbow being the the new icon. I mean, maybe there's the subcategory of icon, which is trend. So I don't know how long it will last for. But again, it's all about being able to see it from a distance, isn't it? About I've got the one that's really, really expensive that you can't get and you can tell from a distance away. But I really like it. I, a lot of people hate on Hublot, as, as people say. And you might even say that Hublot doesn't offer a huge amount of value for the money that they're charging, like Brick Watch Company. <laughs> but nevertheless, if you go into something like that with your eyes open and you know what you're buying and you still choose to do it because you like the way it looks and there's nothing else that re can replicate it, so be it. And I think the... The rainbow carbon fibre, the strips of carbon fibre in that MP09 are really, really cool. And as a, as a specific approach to the rainbow thing, I've, I've not seen it before. And that's, that's what I like. Whether or not I like the overall look of the thing, I like waking up one day and wondering, I wonder what's going to surprise me today. And that surprised me. I really mm. like that. The Moser, on the other hand, God, those guys just can't do anything wrong, can they? They are so good. Talk about taking a a trend like that and turning it into something that's i don't know it's somehow benefiting from the uh, the popularity of the rainbow gem set watch while also not feeling like just a cynical copy i don't know how yeah. they do it i don't know if it's my bias towards them because they do fun stuff like the cheese watch yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean doing the cheese watch does give you a lot of forgiveness going forward <laughs> yeah. it does give you a lot of street creds actually maybe maybe brick is the company to do it to bring back the swiss icons watch maybe we should encourage dave we should encourage dave to copy the best bits from every watch brand he can think of and then the entire swiss watch industry can pile in and sue him oh man that would be fun um <laughs> but this the streamliner as, as well because it's uh it's moses uh addition to the integrated bracelet 70s look but again it feels different and I actually mm. think that they have, whether it's on purpose or inadvertently, managed to start to pull in some of the 90s trends. Remember like the, the Tag Heuer link where everything yeah. was a bit more organic in shape, had more curves than it did hard yeah. edges. They've, they've crossed the bridge between that 70s, 80s look and the 90s look. And then they've put the gem set in as well. So it just feels like it's it's almost alien. It's, it's almost a, a different interpretation that sits alongside the watch industry rather than threading through it along with everything else. Just sat on the outside going, aha, yes, I see you. I see you all. And this is what we're going to do. We are nearly at show's end. We have one more watch to review, but we're not actually going to review it. It's David's uh, article he wrote on a Seiko Credor at the decimal minute repeater. Now, the answer is in the text of the uh, article, but we do like to play this game, which is guess how much the Seiko is going for. So, <laughs> Andrew, without... I don't know if you've already read this. I dare say you have. And if you have, then just make something up so that it's funny. But <laughs> if I describe the Credor Spring Drive decimal minute repeater, how much are you guessing it costs? Well, to use, um, to use logic... A cradle with no complication whatsoever is about 50,000. So add a little bit of juicy complication in there, and you're probably somewhere towards 150. Okay, so 150,000 is the best guess. Uh, David, you wrote the article. So actually, I'm realizing this game doesn't really work because you wrote the article and I'm reading the article. So everyone will just need to go and check out David's yeah. article to find out how close to the higher or lower 
Andrew was in this week's Guess How Much the Seiko Costs and we'll maybe give the watch an actual review next week when we have some more time. But thank you, gentlemen, for joining us on this week's show. Andrew, where can we find you? What are you up to? Have you put an underscore in your Instagram account because everyone's abandoning David and his Instagram underscore? We're looking for someone to volunteer to add underscores to their Instagram account. Uh, are you volunteering? Um, I, I barely Instagram, so I've got no idea what you're talking about. However, <laughs> I am I am just about on there. I think I post on occasion. Andrew Morgan watches. Just put Andrew Morgan watches into whatever it, platform it is that you're on. And if you find something, I'm there. Excellent. And you can uh, watch that. What videos have you got coming up on both Watch Finder and your Andrew Morgan channel? Oh, we had a great interview with Mike France. Actually, that has just come out around the bel canto. Really, really enlightening um, on the Watch Finder channel because uh, a lot of people have thrown a little bit of cynical shade at the whole idea of having a limited run of the bel canto. But when you hear the interview, you'll realise that the guy is just as surprised as we are. <laughs> Yes, I was at the launch of that watch, uh, and yes, they, they opened up by saying, I think their opening line for the event was, yeah, this was supposed to be a launch party, but for various reasons, we had to launch the watch yesterday, and it's actually sold out, so this is no longer a launch party, this is just a party, and, and on they went, and there were very many meetings in corners that evening and the following day of them trying to decide how quickly they could offer the next run of colour so that they could keep the momentum going, which they then did the following day, I think, and it very quickly sold out. So, yeah, a, a, a very unexpected success. Or not an unexpected success, an unexpectedly quick success for Christopher Ward. David, where are your travels taking you this week? Oh, to my bed, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what to say about that, but yeah, enjoy, enjoy a kip enjoy your sleep so there we go <laughs> do check out everything on a blog to watch do contact the show if you've got a question a comment a contribution then email podcast at a blog to watch.com thank you very much for listening have a great week goodbye bye 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 everyone thank you for listening <laughs>